Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, you're listening to Living the Dream and you're joined here with Dave today and I'm pretty excited. Uh, today we're, I'm having a chat with Eleanor Jeffries. How are you, Eleanor? I'm really great. Brisbane's nice and sunny. We're sitting out in the TAFE, beautiful fresh air. Yeah, it is quite nice out here. Um, Eleanor, you're involved in an organisation called Respect Inc., is that correct? Yep, that's right. I'm the state coordinator, so I'm in a full-time role, um, yeah, full-time organiser role with our peer educators and the sex worker community here in Queensland. Okay, I guess that's a good starting point. So what is Respect Inc.? What do you do? Where do you come from? So Respect Inc. is a funded sex worker peer-only organisation. It's been going for almost 10 years here in Queensland. Um, it is part of the funding structure for the HIV and STI strategies here in Australia. So we are in partnership with government in that sense. Um, having said that, we are a fiercely autonomous organisation. So we are independent. We are, have a board that is made up of sex workers only who are elected each year by our membership, which is sex workers only, um, and all of our staff, volunteers, um, are also uh, peer only. Um, we don't allow bosses, owners, operators or third parties as part of our internal structures, um, and that is a theme that runs throughout uh, sex worker organising around the world, um, and clients also can't join. Um, so we have a specific understanding of ourselves as workers and that our role as workers and our needs and demands and our status as workers is best met when we organise ourselves to the exclusion of those who may have roles of, you know, being in control in the workplace. Yeah. Could you give us a bit of an understanding of the history of how this organisation has risen out of uh, sex worker struggles in Australia? Yeah, well, let's, let's take a step back to kind of bigger picture stuff around the sex worker movement. The documented history that we draw on today really started in 1975 with the sex workers' occupations and strikes in France and uh, then the UK. The... Of course, there was sex worker organising before that and you there is documentation of peer education among sex workers, you know, 400, 500 years ago across Europe, um, historically uh, across Southeast Asia and anywhere that sex work has been taking place, there has been organising, strikes, um, sex workers getting together. But the new modes of technology and particularly mainstream media in the 70s created amazing opportunities for sex workers. So the alternative left press um, in France did, had played a big role in pushing the profile of the sex worker occupations in Lyon and it became a front page, perhaps for titillating reasons across, um, you know, newspapers all over the world. But what it meant was that at that time, sex worker organising in other Western countries that had access to that mainstream media just like, and I know from my dear friend, she passed away last year, Roberta Perkins, but um, uh, I know from her own experience talking to me, they could have been bowled over with a feather. <laughs> they opened the paper and went, hell's bells, there's other sex workers like us organising in other places. Um, the strike went for 10 days. They occupied um, one of the major churches in Lyon. And during that 10 days, there was a lot of 
of um, logistical support that was coming from left-wing and social justice activists uh, in Lyon and in other places around France, which meant that sex worker groups in America, um, such as Coyote, who had already started up in San Francisco, um, and the Australian Prostitutes Collective, which had already started up uh, here in Australia, were hooked in and having phone conferences um, with the sex workers in Lyon at the time. How, so this is mid-70s? It's 1975. Um, it wasn't the first occupation that the French sex workers had undertaken, but it was the first one that got that mainstream attention. And so that was when the phone networking started... Um, People started to get to know each other on a like solidarity and a personal level. Friendship started to be created among those different countries, um, and it then kicked on into the first World Whores Congress, um, which was predominantly Western, but did from the very early days have Thai representation, Thai sex worker organising, um, kind of linked in with that, um, and so that main demands at that time actually still hold today and that is the removal of police as regulators and of sex work. Um, the occupation was triggered by the fact that some of the leaders in the sex worker movement in Lyon um, had been detained and then put in jail and there had been a lot of um, police violence and um, injustices up to that point but the sex worker community in Lyon said, that's it, enough's enough. We're occupying until our colleagues are let out of prison. Their main complaint, again, still stands today, is you're not investigating the violence and the murders that sex workers in our immediate community have alerted you to, and instead you're locking up people who have come forward to report th these things that have happened to them. We, start, we kind of link that as our starting point. Now... The formal structures of developing like formal or incorporated organisations um, have a history from that moment too. So the sex workers in Lyon uh, uh, formulated um, an organised structure, in fact, across France, um, but they were denied the ability to register their organisation due to the laws that prevent sex workers from organising together and... Um, and this is unfortunately not an uncommon story globally. Could, could you explain that, how that law works? Yeah, so the, in many countries there are laws that stop sex workers from organising together because once we start organising together we can be charged for pimping each other. Yeah, so it's a two-way thing and that still exists in Queensland. Um, and actually, when Respect went to incorporate, um, Respect wanted the word sex worker in the title of the organisation and that was not, um, that didn't get through the incorporation's people and then they had to kind of, kind of uh, water it down to a word. Yeah, so that's how we ended up being called Respect, which actually was the name of the, the statewide magazine for sex workers at the time, so they adopted that. But it's not just France where they had those problems. So in Thailand as well, when Empower Foundation first started, they tried to incorporate themselves as a sex worker organisation and they too were knocked back from being able to register as a formal uh, um, incorporated body um, and so they softened their name as well and it's also happened recently in South Australia just last year um, where the sex industry network during incorporation was also refused to be able to have the, the explicitness in our title of, of what they actually do. So the laws that criminalise sex work reach into every aspect of our lives. They impact the way that we work. They impact um, all of and colour all of our interactions with the justice system, the social security system, the mental health system and um, we're going to talk a bit later about the Swedish model but that's really like um, arced that up a lot in the countries where that's come into play um, and it also impacts the shape of our organising. Um, so compromises have been made along the way for, during the formal creation of formal structures of sex worker organisations. Now we've been talking a bit about the 70s and the 70s were important for that um, 
kind of groundbreaking international agreement among sex worker organisations as to what our kind of code was in our broader movement. And that was set in stone at the first two World Whores Congresses, which was in the 70s and early 80s. But the time, the the turning point for a lot of sex worker organising to become more formalised um, really uh, came to the fore during the beginnings of HIV. Even before the uh, medical journals had passed from through their own peer review processes that HIV was transmitted through bodily fluids and through sex, sex workers um, also were really involved at the front line, being involved, whether it be like in HIV clinics and at the hospitals, caring for their friends, caring for each other, and sex workers were way on to we need to start using condoms to prevent ourselves in our own community from dying. Um, uh, sex workers in Australia, for example, started um, accessing hospitals uh, to get bulk condom supplies, um, ordering bulk condom supplies through their own means and starting uh, rostered regular uh you know, going around to different workplace sites to give people free access to condoms and safe injecting equipment. Um, That was well and truly underway at the time when the federal government in Australia sat down and had to have a really reality check of the HIV epidemic in Australia. And at the time they turned to a public health model very much influenced by the Ottawa Charter and Jakarta Declaration. I'm sorry, I don't know what either of those are. So both of those um, international agreements talk about the responsibility for public health being a systemic responsibility and that actually governments have a role to play in creating um, access to the tools for communities to access tools that are for our own health. So rather than recreate the wheel, the federal government at the time looked to the pre-existing activity that sex workers are doing and uh, funded that activity that had already started. And that was on a federal and state government level. So um, even though there are some organisations in Australia that had been already funded to do their work pre-HIV, and I'm, I'm looking at the Australian Prostitutes Collective in New South Wales in particular for that, um, what followed from that HIV turn, that, that turnaround on a federal level was that um, sex workers who were out in our own community doing that really important work um, and informal peer education that has, you know, a history of centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, yeah, those, though, that community, my community, um, were then in re- recipients of funding to continue doing that work within a more structured model. And that's how you really, that's where we trace the you know, the formal peer education today. And that is actually still the funding model of formal peer education today. So the uh, work that Respect Inc. does is cemented in a really long tradition. Um, We are quite decentralised in Queensland, um, which is another um, uh, kind of quirky aspect of the Queensland sex worker community. Queensland is really diverse. no sex worker in Mount Isa is gonna is gonna, you know, uh, put props up for a brothel worker from Brisbane coming and saying, "Hey, here's how you can do your work better." Sex workers, we gel with people that are the closest to us as peers, and that peer-based model isn't just about having sex workers during peer education. It's also about our actual status background, language background, work experience, gender, age, where we were born. Um, So, for example, we have uh, local peer educators in Cairns, 
and Townsville and the Gold Coast, who are people who are local sex workers from those places. Um, we have an Asian-focused peer educator in our team as well, who's Thai background, born in Thailand, speaks um, five languages from the Mekong area, plus English. Um, and a lot of projects around Australia also have funded um, peer educators who are of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background, trans background, and male peer educators as well. Um, and also here in Queensland, uh, our organisation Respect has a youth peer educator too, who is someone who's um, 25 years or younger, who is particularly, um, you know, in touch with and, and actually uh, working as a young person, therefore better able to engage on a kind of, you know, community organising level with other young people. Yeah. So it's a long tradition. Um and, yeah, we, we don't just fight to keep it. We fight to improve all the time, you know, evaluation, debriefing, um, broader engagement with the sex worker movement and community is a big part of uh, the background of what we do. Uh, sex worker organisations are structured civil society groups within a broader sex worker movement. Yeah, so the movement doesn't begin and end at the door of the respect office. It's bigger than that. It's changing all the time. And the best, best thing we can try to do as a funded organisation is keep ourselves um, like really in touch with what's happening in, in net, the here and now. So heaps of what we do is real-time responses to real-time situations. Yeah. So I guess maybe moving on to that, you know, what... What does sex work in Australia look like today? What are the conditions of sex workers like and where are the, the struggles going on and what are they over? Yeah. So um, that's a really good question. And look, the first and primary demand of the sex worker movement has documented from the 70s and before is removing police as the role of the regulators. Uh, we, as for shorthand, we call a model, a regulation model that doesn't include police, we call it decriminalisation, which means the removal of all the criminal laws, anything in the criminal code that is designed to control how, when and where sex workers can work. And um, respect and the sex worker movement and all the organisations that you would go to around this issue include street-based work in that, include sex workers working with HIV in that and include uh, migrant sex workers with or without a visa and actually they're some of our key um, they're some of the key frontier stuff that the sex worker movement has always been involved in you know um, it is a part of society for sex to be solicited in public places it is a part of the society we live in that people with HIV are able to choose when and how they want to work, including sex work. Um, it is part of uh, the sex worker movement dialogue that borders are inherently oppressive, that borders create um, unsafe environments for migrating sex workers, and that um, the, uh, the current, like, obsession around border control as far as the movement sees it is really an, a more visible and ongoing um, phenomena now that actually sex workers have been subjected to for centuries um, and that can be traced back through legislative models in the west it can be traced back to movement around the Mekong um, during kind of colonization and partial colonization um, it's a really big issue in China where you need a travel card to be able to travel within China um, so they're some of the key frontiers in Australia specifically that means campaigning for legislation that decriminalises sex work. It uh, has happened to a degree in New South Wales in the 1990s and it was really pushed along by the Wood Royal Commission and the exposure of the levels of um, corruption and violence and um, uh, kind of the, you know, people realising, okay, the stuff that the police do isn't just a rumour, it's actually systemic, it's happening 24-7 
um, across the board and it's not appropriate for police to be regulating sex work for that reason. Um, the first bout of decriminalisation there actually happened in the 70s um, and so it hasn't... So, yeah, New South Wales has an interesting history with decriminalisation. We've had to fight to retain it. It doesn't properly extend to street-based workers because street-based workers are limited by... Um, specific uh, planning locations and stuff like that in ways that doesn't fit into the decriminalisation like theoretical framework that the movement sees it. However, it's, um, it's, it's been very beneficial for workers in other sectors. Uh, uh, South Australia um, has had a decriminalisation bill on the table on and off for about 30 years. Oh, so wow. sex workers have been fighting for that and that all has its own quirks as well. Um, and here in Queensland, the uh, Fitzgerald inquiry and the corruption found in the Fitzgerald inquiry, like the conclusions of the Fitzgerald inquiry were to remove police from regulation of sex work. Um, however, QPS has really kind of held on to that. Um, and when there was a big... Uh, round of law reform in the late 1990s. Um, they and the Beattie government ended up bringing in a licensing model instead. What is it, what does that licensing model look like? The licensing model creates a series of rules that are overseen by police and fall within the um, the the responsibility of the police minister to approve sex work to happen in a very prescribed manner that is the shape of a licensed brothel that has managed to tick a whole range of boxes and pay a whole bunch of fees in order to be able to be considered legal. Um, it's twenty dollars to $30,000 upfront fees before you get approval. And then once you're approved to open, uh, it's $20,000 a year to pay for that licensing fees, plus a few thousand dollars to have every um, receptionist and manager's uh, individual licence updated. Uh, it includes a really strenuous probity check. So let's say you or and I wanted to go open up a brothel tomorrow. Um, over the next 12 months, the all living members of our related family would be contacted and asked for character references. It's really funny, actually, because some people who have done it have found out about blood relations that they didn't even know they had um, because the probity check is so intense. It's like, forget myancestry.com. That's got nothing on the licensing <laughs> licensing probity checks here in Queensland. Um and look, it's it's expensive. It's not only expensive, it's a very uh, fixed model of operating. So you can have only a certain number of rooms. You can have only a certain number of workers on premises. There is mandatory testing systems for the sexual health of those workers on premises, um, which is another like intense, invasive, oppressive structure that exists for sex workers all around Australia and globally as well. Um, and the upshot is, after 20 years, um, is we only have 20 of those licensed premises here in Queensland. They're all in southeast Queensland except for one. So anywhere kind of, you know, north of, say, the Sunshine Coast, um, your options to work in a licensed brothel are limited. Even if you're in southeast Queensland, to work in a licensed brothel means fitting into the services that the licensed brothel determines. So, for example, it's all full service. So if you're a sex worker who um, is wanting to do things other than full service, you can't get a job in a licensed brothel. If you're a sex worker that doesn't... Um, doesn't want to have to be tied into long shifts um, and fixed shifts, yeah? You don't get to choose your shift. Some of them can be uh, seven hours, some of them can be 10 hours, some of them can be 12 hours. And if you have to leave during your shift or you can't make a shift, like you can't get make it in for that particular shift and you have to throw a shift or whatever, you can't, you can't 
bump that shift over to another worker or to another day. Licensed brothels in Queensland um, operate in such a way that they'll just say, well, look, um, if you can't make your shift, actually, we're going to take you off the roster for two weeks as punishment and then maybe you maybe we'll think about having you back then, da-da-da-da. So, and so much of that is a direct result of this licensing framework that forces the licensed brothels to fit into a certain model, which means in order to make money, they're following a certain model. Um, and yeah, it's just really, um, it's really slim. Yeah, so that's brothel work. And that is licensed and that is regulated by the police but in a way that the, the intention is to regulate it to continue. Then you have everything else, which is literally 90%, like so about 10% of sex workers are covered by that style of regulation. And then, about, and then everyone else, which is 90% of sex workers, fall outside of that regulation and thus are directly regulated by the police um, and... Uh, let's just talk a little bit about that now. Yeah. So um, if so, okay. So I've been a sex worker for almost twenty years now, and a big chunk of that has been here in Queensland, in southeast Queensland, and in Townsville. Uh, for me to work um, in a way that reduces the amount of police attention that I get, I am meant to work alone. I am not meant to share overheads with other workers. I am meant to manage my own, um, all of my own like uh, business activities. I am not permitted to text another worker the comings and goings of my day because if I do, that immediately implicates the worker as being involved in this crime which is called participating in the provision of prostitution. If I, let's say, Dave, you're a private worker and you're working from home today and I'm a private worker and I'm going off on an escort and you and I are being buddies for the day for safety, when I text you to say, all right, I'm at the address, um, blah, 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 this is the address, this is the client, I'm, I'm going to text you in an hour, let's yeah. check in. Or when you get a booking and you're like, oh, you know, my, my client's arrived and this is what they look like and this is their phone number, yeah. I'll text you back in an hour. You and I are participating in the provision of prostitution for each other and we're both committing a crime. Doesn't that sound like basic safety of looking at... Like, isn't this making it much more dangerous for 90% of sex workers in Queensland? Yes, absolutely. The laws are, are... The laws make... If we were to follow the laws, it would make our days less safe. So every single day, every single client that you see, you are making a conscious decision between working safely or working legally. That's nuts. Yeah, it's pretty full on. And where this really comes to the fore is if the police want to do a, decide to do a sting on you, and we'll get back a little bit to what they're kind of how they set those up. But if you've become, if the police decide that they want to do a sting on you, one of the first things police do is they seize laptops and phones for evidence of your communication with other parties so that they can add on top of whatever other charges they're following through with the participating in provision of prostitution charge. Um, the One of the big problems with all of these charges in Queensland is that sex workers, a lot of sex workers are charged yeah, so we have like there's a huge um, yeah there's a huge amount of police activity in this area, like in regional towns, in Brisbane, in all across the Gold Coast, all across the Sunshine Coast, um, even in Western Queensland, there's been stings, and uh, sex workers have been understandably reticent to challenge the charges in court. When a sex worker has challenged it in court police have ended up dropping the charges. So that means we don't have any case law about whether 
what the police are doing is really even in fitting with what the intention of the law is. And many of us, from reading the second reading speeches from Beattie's intentions with the law in 1999, consider that it was not the intention of the Beattie government to sick every QPS officer in Queensland onto every private worker and our, the minute details of our day in Queensland. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we didn't get onto the kind of MO of how the stings happen, but that's, that's like a bit of a picture um, about the police, level of police activity here. And, um, and it's not, um, this isn't imaginary, okay? This isn't on paper. This is what sex workers are dealing with every day. There is at least one or two sex workers a month that come through respect for support with court-based stuff, arrests, um, the outcome, the deportations that come with that, um, the fines that come with that. So five, six thousand dollar fine isn't that unusual if you plead guilty to some of these charges. Um, with the loss of accommodation as a result, because it can make you can make your accommodation insecure if you are, especially if you're in a like an apartment complex or something that has a um, strata committee attached to it, um, the strata can legally turn around and say, oh, you know, you're doing something that the strata doesn't allow. We're actually ending your lease now. Um, these, uh, pleading guilty and paying the fine um, is a, can come back later as well during custody issues. So it has come up in the family court as proof that of people being a sex worker. Um, and we've had, uh, and we know that in Queensland, the people that are targeted primarily by police with these activities are sex workers who are non-English speaking background. And there's been a lot of questions that we have as a community about police taking advantage of another sex worker's um, you know, perhaps weak to medium English skills that sex workers are not, sex workers are being entrapped in ways that wouldn't hold up in court. However, who wants to take that through and be fighting it for a year when actually you're either here on a student visa or you are, um, you know, you're trying to get your kids to school, you're trying to worry about a trillion other things. And so, yeah, so I mean, respect... Um, anyone who's listening, please know that Respect is here to help you challenge those charges if you want to. And also please know that um, uh, the choice to plead guilty for the charges to kind of be resolved as soon as possible, we can support you as best as possible with that as well. Um, if you plead guilty, we have had some successes with people getting their property back. So when police seize money, phones, laptops, um, there have been a lot of situations where sex workers have never got them back. Um, but we, in the last 12 months, we've had some success with people getting their property back, which has been good. Um, and also, um, yeah, so we, we so respect um, deals with a lot of this stuff. Um, Advertising is another really highly regulated aspect of our work here in Queensland. You, there is a list of words that you can and can't use in your advertising. Um, it's really dictated by the police, who actually most of the time don't even bother about going on the list and checking if it's a word people can or can't use. And once the police decide they're going to raid you, they just will run with it and... Um, yeah, so for example, uh, girlfriend experience as a term, you're allowed to put that in your advertising, but you can't put it as an acronym. So if you put GFE, so there's been people in Queensland who have been charged and fined for using GFE. Now, why would you use an acronym? Well, because you pay by the word in newspaper advertising. So... Um, it makes a lot of sense to sex workers to use uh, those shortened versions, even on internet advertising, because it means at a glance a client can see what it is that you offer. So the limitations on us from our advertising have two uh, 
impacts. The first is that police attention, they can just literally decide to raid you on the basis of a word in your ad. And or instead of raiding you, they might sit at their desk and send, put together a fine and text it to you over your phone. Yeah, they don't even have to leave their desk and then you're stuck with either challenging the fine or paying the fine. They're around $600-700. And then... So for using a banned word? For using a banned word, yeah. So, um, like, for example, you can't use the term young. However, you can put young in brackets over 18. Yeah. You um, can't use a word that implies um, any kind of bodily fluids. Um, you can't, so you can't, yeah, so, oh, look, I, look, really, on the words thing, I could go on and on. That's a show in itself because, and, I mean, we've had police who have deliberately gone after people just because they've got the word anal in their ad and it's complete complete slut-shaming behaviour where they think, oh, if the person offers anal, then they're probably doing illegal things. Like, just complete and utter um, judgment call by the police. Um, but if you don't put the word anal in your ad, then how are your clients meant to know what you do? So getting to the second point about the problem with the advertising restrictions in Queensland is it just adds all of this labour time for us to have to filter through clients on the phone or an email or on text message or messenger or whatever it is we're communicating with clients about, about what the hell we actually offer. You know, like if you're a client, you're really, you're, you're a bit stumped. You're kind of either taking a chance and hoping when you turn up, the worker offers something that you want. Um, but, um, yeah, so none of this is helping. So we've got the police pressure on one hand and then the extra labour that is required. The law about not being able to share overheads is outrageous. Um, so, co you know, co-ops, working together, sharing a hotel room, sharing sheets, for fuck's sake, like all of that stuff, um, if you were targeted by the police, they would use all of that stuff to up the fines and up the charges against you. And, uh, and as sex workers, we're a pretty tight-knit community. Sometimes the only other people who know what our job is is other sex workers. Of course, that's where you're going to go for, um, to, for support, for advice, to share a hotel room, to share a work flat at someone's place, uh, to share a driver. So it's illegal to share a driver as well. Um, yeah, so I've probably gone on about that enough, enough, enough. But um, I will say for listeners who want to know more about this kind of, these, this, the specifics of the laws, um, Respect has created some, or actually there is a subcommittee of Respect. It's called the DCRIM subcommittee. And that's a group of volunteers, sex workers who have come together around concern for the laws um, and who are workers of all different kind of backgrounds, all different locations. And that subcommittee has created a series of videos, really short videos, that explain to the viewer what the laws limit us from being able to do. So I'd recommend anyone um, who's kind of more interested in the decriminalisation campaign stuff that's going on in Queensland at the moment, get yourself on the Respect website and check out the decrim page um, and look at the stuff that that sex worker subcommittee has created to like get a better picture um, of what it is that we're up against. Um, and it's every day. Like it's literally the really small, minute, basic stuff that is part of your work every day. Yeah, look, Ellen, this is fascinating Start. My, my first thoughts are basically what you described, that the law works to, uh, in, it, basically if you don't have the capital, you're fucked, right? So, you know, you can only open brothels if you start with a huge amount of capital. Then the laws work to individualise you even more. So that, again, puts you on your own income and increases the amount of costs that you've got. That, that's got to have a huge impact on people's lives. Uh, so... <laughs> Are you hopeful about shifting any terrain around decriminalisation? You know, in terms of Queensland, you know, who are you up against? Who are your enemies? And how's the fight going? Mm. Um, look, the campaign in Queensland is going quite well. Um, and I'll tell you why. It's because uh, 
Look, a lot of sex workers in 1999 justifiably thought, okay, we're going to give this these new laws a go. We'll give them a go. I mean, look, Scarlet Alliance denounced them from the first day. You know, all of the kind of movement analysis was the laws are shit. But for a lot of people working day to day, it's like, all right, we'll give it a go. However, 20 years in, we have a situation where everybody knows someone, either either you yourself have been um, limited by the law, um, you've had to limit yourself by the law, you've made unsafe decisions due to the law, or you've had something happen to you and you've tried to report a crime and you've been basically threatened with arrest or thrown out of the police station. And... So what we have now is a milieu of sex workers all across the state who are completely jack of the situation. Um, anyone you talk to who's a sex worker in Queensland has a strong opinion that the laws have to change. And that is, that is the biggest thing we've got going for us here in Queensland um, is like a really strong sense of movement solidarity around these issues. The other thing we've got going for us is that the Queensland government has proven itself to be open to some socially progressive policies. The abortion law reform has been massive here and it's been an achievement that I think many, even in the Labor Party, never thought would see the light of day. Um, and, you know, many of us as sex workers were involved in that fight as well. And so, yeah, that's fabulous. Um, it's not a matter of when or if the laws will change, it's a matter of when. And so our question now is how can we position the campaign so that it happens within this term of government? Um, and, yeah, we've had some successes around that. Um, I have to say, as a sex worker activist travelling the country, some of our, some of our biggest... Um, breakthroughs have been because politicians are only human as well and they, if they are lucky, they will know of the sex workers in their own immediate circles or families who are affected by the law. Uh, visibility and the ability to speak out has, uh, you know, that landscape has changed a lot in the last 50 years for the sex worker community. Even though we're also facing all the bans on Facebook, um, you know, all the bans to do with various, like, credit card agencies, the Foster SESTA, which means that a lot of our websites and community networks um, have gone down. Um, even in the face of that kind of limitations of our ability to organise, um, actually sex workers there is a lot of confidence within the sex worker movement with speaking out against injustice. Um, yeah, so we've definitely got that going for us. Um, and like I said, this uh, subcommittee of sex workers, when it was formed just over a year ago in Queensland, from any organiser's perspective, it has been really amazing to see so many sex workers from different diverse backgrounds, different working practices um, come together and kind of throw their might into the idea that we can improve working conditions here in Queensland. I guess if, you know, if I look at the debate around sex work that happens in the media, it seems like a lot of attention is on law reform going the other way and there's a lot of debate and attention for what I think is called the Swedish model. Could you um, explain to us what's at stake in this in this debate of this opposition between a Swedish model and decriminalisation? Look, everything. It's really everything. Um, the Swedish model is so dangerous um, and we know from, um, you know, more than a decade of it in Sweden, it has made sex work so incredibly dangerous. The Swedish model at its heart is an extension of the criminalisation of activities associated with sex work to encompass... Uh, everything to do with clients as well. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, at the moment in Queensland, uh, it's illegal for two workers to operate from the same building. If the Swedish model was in place, it would also be illegal for the client 
to go to a booking, even if the worker was on their own. So what that means is that the client is less likely to participate in a transaction that the sex worker themselves has physical and economical control over. So it, the client is, um, because of the client criminalisation, it's really disempowering for our sex worker work practices. It makes it harder to implement our own safety practices. It makes it harder to work from places that we feel are safe. Um, it makes it impossible for sex workers in Sweden to work from home, for example. Um, it, uh, it, it, and just want to get on to some of the way that the mental health institutions um, in Sweden kind of cross over into this. The Swedish model isn't just about criminalisation. It's also about the embracing the policy concept that sex work is not work, it's a form of abuse, and that if you do it, you are committing self-harm to oneself. So in Sweden, if you are a sex worker, not only are you trying to negotiate your everyday work with the power imbalance being very much tipped towards the client, if you get caught up in systems of the mental health systems or, say, custody systems or anything to do with the social services kind of bent to it, then you can be ordered to stop sex work or undergo either, like, lose your children, undergo forced psychiatric care, get sectioned. It's been really horrendous for migrant sex workers as well because, um, like, every agency is on the lookout for how sex workers they can, you know, deport, sex workers they can section, sex workers they can send home, sex workers they can identify to social, like, social security systems and structures. Um, we have had deaths in Sweden that are the direct outcome of these structures where people have been forced into, they can only see their children if their violent partner brings the children to them and is with them during the visit. I just want all the listeners to know that it's not just Sweden anymore as well. We've had this, that model has been implemented in France, it's been implemented in Israel, and it's been implemented in Canada. Who's driving this model? Like, what's, why is it picking up some kind of speed at the moment when it sounds so just fucking hor horrible? On a political level, it's been driven by the feminist left, so it's coming out of left-wing political parties. That's, that's really quite troubling, right? It's, yeah, it's... it's Look, it is what it is. This is where the left is. Carceral feminism is real. It is feminists who are from left-wing parties that support the prison industrial complex, um, the foster sister uh, laws out of the US were the first laws to come before US House and be supported by the Republicans and the Democrats. I can't emphasise how much this is a left-wing problem. I mean, there's also other factors such as uh, churches and conservative religious elements love these policies and they'll back it to the hilt as well, which does give these left-wing feminists a bit of a, you know, boying along. Um, Labor in the UK are really going to be, they're struggling around this. Um, I'm not completely across that. There's other people that would know more about that. But Honeyball in particular, who was the EU representative um, from the UK, from you know, at the in the European Parliament, a couple of years ago, uh, pushed forward a policy statement from EU Parliament that favours the Swedish model. For example, in France, it's been left the left wing left wing feminist ministers who have pushed it. Same in Sweden, same in Canada. Yeah, this is really this should trouble anyone on the left in terms of understanding where politics are at today um, and. Uh, yeah, like, um, you know, 
Yeah. So I could actually go on that on to that for a long time. I have um, just I just want to promote a few extra yeah, resources. Yeah, yeah please go that, for it. Um, that the listeners might be interested in. So there's a new book that's out. It's called. Um, uh, Revolting Prostitutes. Is it called Revolting? Yeah, it's called Revolting Prostitutes. That's a really great book to read on this topic because they've really um, unpacked heaps around the feminist um, feminist left-wing tendencies to support um, carceral feminism. Um, There's a book here I've got in front of me that I've just given Dave a copy. It's called Playing the Whore by Melissa Jira Grant Um, and that's really great too. It's basically kind of like her... Her reflections on doing advocacy in the media and being a journalist on this topic and the kind of pushback that she experiences and the kind of stereotyping that we face when we stand up around this stuff. Um, There's something else as well, which is the, like, basically the anti-trafficking movement, which comes into play on this too. Which is, that used to be called Project Respect. The anti-trafficking movement in Australia was that that organisation? Yeah, look, and it still is. So Project Disrespect are based in Victoria. They're an incorporated organisation in Victoria and they receive funds from the federal, state and state government and also local council as well. They actively campaign for the Swedish model also. Yeah, anti-trafficking models are pro-border. Yeah, there's no, like, you want the simple version? I'll give you the simple version. Uh, you think um, everyone from ICE to border, border protection to, you know, all the thugs in uniforms that want to bash hookers and send them home, um, et cetera, et cetera, that is, the, that is the physical front of the anti-trafficking movement, um, which is why so much of this um, to do with uh, trafficking and migrant sex worker issues boils down again to a question around borders. And, um, yeah, we, for centuries, sex workers have been the kind of historical symbol of people's fear around leaky borders, you know. So when Russia, for example, um, opened itself up to the rest of Europe and finally people in Russia were able to work in other places and sex workers from Russia travelled the world to work. Um, we got the entire Russian sex slave um, stereotype pushed down everybody's throats. Just don't swallow the propaganda. It is a front for border protection bashing of women. That's what it is. It was for, and it is for Russian women. It was and it is for Thai women, for Lao women, for South Korean women, for Chinese women in Australia. Um, Yeah, that's what it is. Um, And uh, I think people in in the left, um, we have to let go of our romantic notions of what feminism could have been. We can't, we cannot ally ourselves with swerf turf mentality. Um, it is as dangerous to the left as fascism is. Like it's a left fascism. That's basically what it is. Um, and it's anti-women um, and anti-trans women as well. Eleanor, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. I also wanted to thank as well Sadie who did the work of getting us in contact with each other. Thank you, Sadie. You're awesome. And getting this happening. Is there anything that we haven't uh, had a chance to talk about that you would like us to talk about now? Look, it's a tough one. There's so much to talk about. Maybe just even uh, how people can find you on social media yeah. presence, can find the organisation, resources. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, the first thing I would say is that the sex worker movement um, has struggled uh, for many decades um, against hierarchy within the industry. There, 20 years ago, there was a real reticence of strippers and BDSM uh, practitioners to want to identify with the sex worker movement because of the huge amount of stigma and policing attention it draws, kind of the blowback on that. That has changed a lot. The sex worker movement has become a lot more inclusive. 
Um, and so I would encourage anyone with sex work background of sex for favours, stripping, phone sex, topless waitressing, um, you know, it, all of the all of the kind of out of the box activities that sex work includes, make yourself known and join your local sex worker organisation. Even if all you're doing is literally joining and you don't have time to participate in other ways, joining is a great way to show your solidarity. Um, secondly, for allies, a message that I think is so important is let us speak for ourselves. However, when someone's saying a whorephobic joke or prattling on about saving sex slaves or some other kind of white saviour complex, step in and tell them to check their privilege. Um, we don't need saving. We Sex worker movement's very clear about what we want. We want the police out of our lives so that our labour conditions can be improved. Um, and get informed. So there's a lot of online material that you can look up. And also the sex worker movement, you know, we are a bit of a closed shop in the sense that we spend a lot of our time together. But hey, there's at least half a dozen opportunities each year where your local sex worker organisation is doing something and calling on allies to turn up. Turn up. <laughs> turn up or tell your friends or, yeah, those kinds of things. And, um, and, this is about thinking also about what is, what is the purpose of um, the rhetorical discussions in the left. What is the point of measuring, work, measuring workplace conditions against an idealised version of Western society that we've been brought up and socialised in? How about listening to workers, to sex workers, who are from different backgrounds to your own and developing an understanding that the expert is the person who is doing it. We accept that within the sex worker movement. You know, I'm from privileged, you know, I'm red as white, I'm, you know, etc., etc. I'm not going to go and tell a migrant worker what they should be doing with their life or their visa and no one but another migrant worker engaging in an organising capacity has really got the, the space and authority to do that. Um, that's how we work and we would really like other people within progressive circles to understand that as well. And um, it means challenging ourselves and challenging ourselves as being positioned as experts on other people that are seen as more marginalised. Yeah, we might be more marginalised in a workplace sense, uh, but we're not stupid. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. I really appreciate this. Um, just, well, how can people find your organisation and yourself online? Excellent. Well, Respect Inc. is at respectqld.org.au. Please check it out. Um, and there's a lot of research, including my own PhD research on this topic, um, is on that website. And you can have a look at it and read to your heart's content. Lots of online videos and resources. Um, yeah, get to know us. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Living the Dream. I'm going to say I'm going to Sempre se tu
проститутки!